I do think there have to be guardrails around the ways in which uh, student athletes um, can be here. There has to be transparency about who's paying them. Um, they have to be able to show, or we have to be able to show, and this is some regulatory process, that indeed they're receiving uh, reasonable payments for what are genuine services. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a reminder that all of my podcast materials, my episodes, my show notes, my descriptions, all that stuff, can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I've also been writing in a blog for over two years now, and there's some good stuff there. You can find that at cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X, Com. In today's episode, we're going to continue talking about presidents. You know, two episodes ago, we talked about university presidents and their role in the overall business model and this movement to put presidents in charge of intercollegiate athletics. And then in the last episode, we talked about the NCAA president and the powers that that office holds that don't get a lot of attention but are very important. Today, we're going to talk about presidents in a different context. And this was really handed down from the podcast gods because this this issue and this scenario perfectly illustrates so many of the things that I uh, want to talk about and have talked about and will emphasize in this podcast. But this revolves around a movement among Big Ten presidents back in August of 2020 during the fall football decision and whether to go forward with fall football. And remember, at that time, the rest of the NCAA had completely shut down because of COVID. Uh, Division three was done. Division two was done. Uh, almost every level of Division one was done, except for the Power Five. And you had the Power Five deciding on their own, independent of the NCAA, whether to go forward with fall football. And the reason that they were able to make that decision outside of the NCAA, and I talked a, a lot about this, this a couple of episodes ago, is that the big-time powerful football schools, because of this Board of Regents decision in 1984, have complete financial freedom from the NCAA and have created complete autonomy in the governance structure. So you have this completely separate entity operating under the NCAA umbrella that's uh, making decisions about whether to play when the rest of the world was literally shut down. And it generated an enormous amount of coverage. So this was really a national story. It wasn't just a sports story. And you know, in the in the sports uh, community, in the sports journalism community, it was all about, we got to play, we got to play, we got to play. And you know, who's going to say yes, who's going to say no. In the broader media, there was some discussion about, you know, is, this is crazy that we're even having this discussion because the the risks were were big, they were real, and there was enormous uncertainty floating around uh, what impact coronavirus had on an otherwise healthy body. So even though these guys are young and healthy, uh, there was this fear and there was research to support this fear, particularly when it came to myocarditis or enlarge enlargement of the heart, that these kids were at, at a particularly high risk for that kind of bad outcome and long-term outcome. And there was, you know, information on that that was floating around. The research wasn't entirely clear, but the question was, were these big-time football schools going to err on the side of safety to resolve the uncertainty, 
or were they going to just go for the money? And as we now know, they went for the money, which is what the Power Five does and what it's always done. And as we all know, uh, in mid-August, the ACC, the Big 12, and the SEC decided full steam ahead. The Big 10 and the Pac-12 said, no, we, we think there is too much uncertainty. And they at least initially did resolve it in favor of safety. And they were talking about maybe a spring season. But then, so a month later in, I don't know, maybe the third week of September, the Big Ten and Pac-12 reverse course and all of a sudden everything's fine. And all of these medical questions and all of these uh, concerns about safety just disappeared. And there were a lot of people who wanted to know what the the thinking was there. And there simply wasn't much information coming out from the in-system stakeholders. And you have to remember, this this decision with the Big Ten and, and Pac-12 uh, was really interesting because they were getting it from both sides. So when they initially decided not to play, they had a huge backlash from fans, from players, from players' parents, and there were protests. And, and there was enormous pressure on them to, uh, to reverse the decision and then they did that in September. And then on the backside of that, they got criticism from public health experts and people who weren't really uh, tied to the inner circle stakeholders of uh, big time college football. And the notion was, what? how can you do this? What happened? Did the laws of physics and biology change in five weeks? And there simply wasn't an intelligent explanation that came out of the Big Ten at the conference level or at the individual school level. So apparently the Washington Post had a couple of reporters who remembered what happened in August and September and uh, decided to stick with it a little bit. And so they served some public records requests on Big Ten schools directly to the schools. And there are 14 schools in the Big Ten and 13 of them are public. And, And those 13 are among some of the most prestigious and powerful public institutions in the United States. The 14th school, Northwestern, is private, and many communications that occur at Northwestern are not subject to public records requests, by by and large. But in all these state schools, each state has its own uh, sunshine law and public records law, and they vary in stringency and, uh, you know, uh, coverage, and all of them have exemptions, and you know, a lot of freedom of information experts believe that just as a society, we have moved more and more towards non-disclosure in our interactions with government, and government is less and less transparent. And some of that's reflected in all of these exceptions that start to swallow the rule in some of these state public records laws. But the Washington Post served these public records requests, and what they got back was very limited, and uh, they got some emails and they got some other documents, but nothing that really went to the meat and potatoes of how this decision was actually made. In the emails that they did receive, these Post reporters saw that there was a pretty clear intent on the part of the Big Ten presidents to take this conversation and move it to a place where it was not discoverable. And it appears that 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 idea in in the initial discussions about how to structure the discussions came from the University of Wisconsin-Madison Chancellor, Rebecca Blank. And the early emails uh, say that uh, apparently the University of Michigan president, Mark Schlissel, 
had reached out to the presidents to try to start the conversation. And then Rebecca Blank responds to that email and says, I would be delighted to share information, but perhaps we can do this through the Big Ten portal, which will assure confidentiality. And now remember that the Big Ten is a separate entity and how these conferences are formed. You have individual schools and then they band together for regional identity and similar purpose and all that stuff. We've talked about that. But the conference itself is a separate entity, a separate legal entity. And they are nonprofits and they have their own budget. They have their own business. They have their own rules. They have their own boards of directors. And they are private. Even though the Big Ten has only one private school, from a legal standpoint, at least on its face and as a technical matter, the Big Ten Conference, Inc. is a private entity and is immune from public records requests. And the Big Ten has invested in an extraordinarily sophisticated communication system that they uh, bought from NASDAQ. It was, or the program was made for NASDAQ, you know, the, the big tech exchange. For them to communicate internally and, you know, exchange all this highly proprietary and confidential information. So this is a heavy hitting security system. This isn't some, you know, Mickey Mouse operation. This is like hardcore, These we, we have a firewall around this thing that is, is like a, a nuclear bunker. The very existence of that software technology raises its own questions, but that didn't seem to be the focus of the Post's inquiry. So anyway, the, the Post writes this article titled, Big Ten Presidents Kept Return to School Football Communications Out of Public Eye. And that's published on March 5th, 2021, and it causes a bit of a stir, not as big of a stir as I think it should have created, but the you had the universities responding because, boy, is it a bad look. I mean, this is just a really bad look. And some of the emails were really explosive on their face. And so there was an exchange between um, the Schlissel and Blank where he says, Becky, if you simply delete emails after sending, does that relieve you of FOIA obligations? And FOIA is Freedom of Information Act obligations. I share your concern, of course. And that concern was keeping these discussions in a private forum. And I, I just want to note, and the post goes to great lengths to, to make this observation, there was no evidence that any of the Big Ten presidents uh, had you know, destroyed public records or deleted emails or anything like that. But the, the responses that came from the universities and their public relations people and their public affairs people and all these spokespeople were really just loaded with weasel words and hidden caveats and all the stuff that you put out when you don't want to acknowledge the truth after you've been caught. And and that was really how this whole scenario kind of played out after this Post article. But the Post article, it goes through the uh, the emails and it also has experts on public records and freedom of information offering their thoughts and they were really alarmed at what happened. And, you know, one of them said after reading an exchange between Blank and some of her in-house people 
at Wisconsin on what would be discoverable and what would not be discoverable. He just comes out and says, there's clear intent here. There's no question about it from the face of these emails. But there's no question that all of them, and they interviewed, I don't know, it looked like four or five of these experts from a variety of standpoints and perspectives. They all thought this was really bad news. And of course, they raise all kinds of uh, interesting legal questions. And, you know, one of the basic precepts of open records laws is that it doesn't really matter how you have the communication. What matters is the substance of the communication. And if you're doing the work of a state entity, then even if you communicate willfully or unintentionally through a communications channel that is not in-house in the in that state entity, those records are still discoverable because of the nature of the record and the content of the record, not uh, how it's communicated. And so you have all of those things. And, you know, the way I'm going to approach this is, is that those are all fine and well, and we can have a big debate, and there may or may not be further inquiry into, into what happened here. But just to show you how these people approached it, I'm going to just read real quick the end of this post article because this pretty much sums it up in terms of the the actual conduct of the Big Ten presidents. It says, The Big Ten football season ended up being marred by coronavirus outbreaks in several programs. Wisconsin canceled two of its first three games, and it postponed another contest because of an outbreak in the opponent's program. Michigan canceled its final three games. How and why the leaders of public universities, after initially canceling the season out of safety concerns, decided to reverse course remains largely opaque to residents of their states. And then there's a quote from one of these experts. He says, um, it's of the utmost public interest, and that makes it all the more shocking. I find the communications that we're talking about here to be so upsetting both as a lawyer, but also as someone who cares about a functioning democracy. And I think in times of public health crises like COVID, that's even more true than it is in our day-to-day democracy. And I, I don't think you can disagree with that. So you had this discussion about a very important matter of public concern, and the decisions that were made didn't make a lot of sense, and they were opaque, and the people who were responsible for making those decisions didn't want to talk about it. And then it just goes away. And you know, fortunately, these, these Post reporters kind of stayed on the trail. And uh, what they got is, um, is pretty disturbing, quite frankly. And Blank's role in this is really important. And I'm going to talk about that because she's not just some university president. And this was her idea. And I have some thoughts on why that's the case. But before I I get to that, I I just want to talk a little bit about this notion that these presidents are still hiding behind the Big Ten. And they want to keep the appearance that that's an entirely separate private organization that they have no control over. They can't tell the Big Ten what to do or what not to do. It's their, those are their documents and it's their retention system and they're a separate entity and all of this stuff. And that suggestion is so profoundly dishonest 
that I, I can't believe, and I've, I've researched kind of how this has played out and tried to get articles and all that stuff, and it doesn't look like there's been a lot of follow-up. You know, after after it broke and after it was clear that Blank was a ringleader, the ringleader, actually, she issued some mealy-mouth apology and issued a statement and said, here's what she said. I regret the language I used in my email exchange with the other Big Ten chancellors, which appears as though I intended to use the Big Ten portal to skirt my public records responsibilities. This was surely not my intention, and I apologize for that appearance. So, okay, so, you know, that, that, those are just your classic weasel words in a statement probably written by somebody else. But that's a, that's a silly apology. But my response to that decision is this. The Big Ten Conference, Inc., as a separate entity, is governed by the Big Ten University presidents. On the Big Ten website, there is a link to the Big Ten Council of Presidents and Chancellors. They call it the COP slash C. And this is what it says. This is how it describes the leadership of the Big Ten Conference, Inc., this separate entity, this ostensibly private entity that they use to have these communications to hide them from, from public view. It says... The Council of Presidents and Chancellors holds ultimate authority and responsibility for Big Ten Conference governance. All policy is decided at the COP C level, including the conference annual budget and all other financial matters. Other responsibilities of the COP C include, but are not limited to, hiring and determining duties of the Big Ten Commissioner, enforcing conference rules, agreements, appendices, and bylaws, amending or repealing bylaws, and admitting new institution into the institutions into the membership. The uh, COPC Executive Committee conducts the regular business of the COPC between its two annual meetings and provides direction to the commissioner in the conduct of the day-to-day operations of the conference. And then the website, uh, that link, lists all of the Big Ten presidents and then a link to their university web pages and their bios and all that stuff. But, you know, just to make sure that there is no question on the legal side, I went to the Big Ten Conference Inc.'s Form 990 tax return that's on the IRS website. And the most recent one is from the tax year between July of 2017 and June of 2018. So that's the tax year 2017. That's the most recent one available. And when you go to the Schedule J, which has all the directors and officers and trustees and key employees and highest compensated employees, it lists all of the university presidents and chancellors and uh, the, you know, the, the CEO of, of all 14 institutions. And they're all listed there. So there's no question about their role. And they've admitted that in you know, public communications. And that's how they frame this organization to the IRS. And these people are responsible for every decision that uh, is, is made at the policy level at, in the Big Ten. And they could go in tomorrow 
and demand that the Big Ten release those documents. They have the authority to do it. They could do it very quickly. And there, there is nothing in the public record that would suggest that, they, that, that there were any limitations on that authority. And if they claim that there are, show, show us those documents. Show us all those bylaws. Show us your conflict of interest policy. Show us all the things that would go to answering how it is that you're in charge of this entity, but now you're hiding behind that entity and hiding your documents in it, and then saying, it's out of our hands. We have, we have no control. It's, it's not our information. You know, a lot of people don't understand that these conferences don't really operate autonomously at, at the business level from the uh, university presidents, at least on paper. So when you go to all five Power Five conferences and you look at their Form 990s, how they are structured as a freestanding nonprofit entity, and then you look at who's responsible for governance, all these university presidents and chancellors are on all of the Form 990s as uh, directors, officers, trustees of each of the conference entities. And at least on paper, they have complete control. And, and I just want to point out, just because uh, this just jumps out in the Big Ten Form 990, because you have some of these university presidents complaining about out-of-control spending and out-of-control coaches' salaries and you know, all these lavish facilities. And when they're going to Congress to testify, they're talking about all these incredible benefits that the athletes get and world-class coaching and you know, top-shelf top facilities and all of this stuff. But, and they use that to make the case that the athletes have it so good that they should just sit down and be quiet. But part of that, of that narrative, suggests that we're just spending too much money. So I'm just, the, 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 in 2017, the Big Ten Conference Commissioner was Jim Delaney. And he had been there a long time. And I mean, he's just a human NCAA uh, Power Five talking point. And his salary in the tax year 2017, was $5,503,965. million. And another interesting thing is that on this Form 990, when they list all of these uh, university presidents, they include what they're paid by their uh, state or by their university. And when you look at that list and you compare the president's salaries to what Delaney is making. It's, it's shocking to me. It's just shocking. And remember, these university presidents set Jim Delaney's salary. They decided that he should get paid that much. And you know, some of these nonprofits, they have to check off some boxes about whether they used outside consultants or committees or how they went about determining the CEO's compensation. But regardless of what, what uh, advice they rely on, it is ultimately the decision of the board of directors. So these people approved this $5.5 million salary and they complain a, a, about uh, spending on the athletic side. It, it, I mean, this just, you know, back when we were talking about the university presidents and, and I was trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, and that was before this story broke. I mean, this this is really a shocker uh, to me, uh, even though I have a pretty cynical view of the whole business model. You know, and when I was talking about that, I was talking about kind of the common responses to why the presidential reform movement and, and 
turning control of intercollegiate athletics over to presidents had been such a miserable failure. And one of the explanations that came from Walter Byers, the former NCAA president, was that presidents were just flat out hypocrites. They were doing the bidding of the big time conferences and that they were more responsible than any other stakeholder in the entire system for all of the corruption they incessantly complain about. And this is a case study in Walter Byers' theory. So it's my hope that uh, the Washington Post or some other journalists or some freedom of information nonprofits, and there are a number of them that do pretty good work, sue these Big Ten universities to try to get these records. And I, I would love to see the legal defenses that the universities offer if that happens. And I wouldn't rule out a case against the Big Ten Conference. And the obvious response there is, wait a minute, they're private. Well, yes and no. And, and there has been some litigation in the sports area. The NCAA faced it in uh, the Tarkanian decision and the Supreme Court uh, said that federal due process rights didn't apply to the NCAA because they were a private actor. And you have to be a state actor in order for those federal uh, constitutional requirements to apply. But one of the central factual issues in that case was the composition of the association in terms of public versus private schools. And they looked association-wide rather than at the, you know, the, by division or, or by classification. And, you know, because Division three is the largest division and is uh, comprised largely of private schools, the overall balance association-wide was like 50-50. And so the NCAA was able to argue with some credibility that, um, that they were not operating as a, a state actor. But then 2000, there was a different case in the athletic regulatory context. And this came out of Tennessee, and the state high school association was sued by a school that had taken some punitive action against the, the school and, and its players. And they claimed that they had been denied due process in that decision. And so they raised those issues and they sued the state association. And the state association said, wait a minute, those requirements don't apply to us. Uh, and, and, and it was similar to the argument that the NCAA made in Tarkanian. They don't apply because we're not a state actor. But in that case, the, the, the U.S. Supreme Court, and this is just 12 years after Tarkanian, the U.S. Supreme Court looked at that uh, Tennessee State High School Association, and something like 85% of the members of that high school association were public schools. And the U.S. Supreme Court held that they were a state actor for the purposes of providing these federal constitutional due process protections. Now, you know, being a state entity for purposes of uh, federal constitutional protections and being a state entity for purposes of public records laws is, is not, they're not identical. But the notion is the same thing. And the Big Ten, I don't know how they get away with claiming that the Big Ten is really a, a legitimate private Nonprofit. I mean, it, it, and it is a state actor, in my judgment. 13 of the 14 schools are state schools. They dominate the, that conference. And under a Brentwood analysis, I think that there's a decent chance that the Big Ten could be deemed a, a state actor or subject to public records disclosures because of the composition of its membership. And, and I think the Power Five as a grouping within the NCAA has a similar problem because there are 65 schools, I think 52 or 53 
are public. So, you know, that you're in the mid 80% range there. And if you look at how the NCAA is actually governed and who's actually calling the shots, you could make the case that in evaluating whether the NCAA is a state actor or subject to public records requests, you can't look at, at anything but the Power Five because they dictate all the policy, their control of, of governance. They influence every major decision in the NCAA. And there, these other parts of the association have virtually zero impact on how that organization does its business. And, and I believe that in part, one of the reasons that the NCAA has developed into this uh, lifeless, bloodless, dark institution is because they're never held accountable at the administrative level for their decision-making, in large part because of this Tarkanian case. And if the NCAA were subject to public records requests, it would be a whole new ballgame. Because in their interaction with Congress, you know, one of one of the themes that has come up, and this is going back for 30 years, is that the NCAA is so dishonest and so opaque that the only way to really figure out what's going on is to serve subpoenas. And that's why I really liked Donna Shalala's bill in the, uh, in the House of Representatives in 2019, because her commission this, it was gonna, that was going to do this grand synthesis of, of college sports in the NCAA had subpoena power. And, and then you absolutely need that to compel the NCAA and the Power Five to explain themselves, to show how the, you know, how the sausage is made. And they will fight to the death to keep that from happening. And, you know, that had been kind of an instinctive NCAA uh, practice. But now you see university presidents doing the same thing. And it is just a terrible, terrible look. And I think it's more than a look. I think if we uh, drill down and we get those documents, there's going to be some bad stuff there. And I, I think the, the university presidents know that. But, you know, you have to remember that the Big Ten universities have enormous power. I've, you know, they're uh, almost all are flagship state universities, and they are connected into the deepest recesses of the quarters of power at the state level in the, you know, the legislative branch, the executive branch, the judicial branch. And so, you know, there's some self-protection, intrastate self-protection, and the aggregate power of those 13 institutions is staggering. And one of the things that we really haven't teased out yet, and one of the dynamics that's playing out in Congress or did play out before, you know, the flip from Republican to Democrat, was that the Power Five, which holds 34 of the nation's flagship state universities, is the most powerful lobbying influence in this entire discussion about the NCAA getting these draconian federal protections and immunities to uh, sit on the iron throne of college sports regulation. And so the NCAA spent all this money on you know, on lobbyists and highbrow lawyers and all these people who, you know, are selling influence in Congress. But that power pales in comparison to the power that these 
Power Five flagship state universities have and their connections to all of the moving parts in this big power machine that uh, is influencing the decision making in college sports. And the Big Ten's a per, uh, the best example of that because of the dominance of state schools and big, powerful state schools. So, you know, people challenging that system are in for an uphill battle. And so it'll be interesting to see if the Washington Post or uh, any of these, uh, you know, freedom of information types of nonprofits wind up filing suit against any of the universities to try to compel these documents. I hope they do. I hope they do. Because really, again, I would just love to see how the NCAA responds. But, But when I saw that story, it just sparked a, a thought and I, I was then was taken back to the Commission on College Basketball that was formed in the fall of 2017. And I've mentioned mentioned this a little bit, but that was, uh, you know, these basketball related scandals and the Southern District of New York and New York, excuse me, and the Justice Department put together a criminal case against some agents and some assistant coaches and some shoe company people. And uh, in connection with that, when when Mark Emmert announced that he was forming the Commission on College Basketball, he issued a press release and a statement that was dated October 11th, 2017. And here's what he says, because this, this is just priceless. The recent news of a federal investigation into fraud in college basketball made it very clear the NCAA needs to make substantive changes to the way we operate and do so quickly. Individuals who break the trust on which college sports is based have no place here. While I believe the vast majority of coaches follow the rules, the culture of silence in college basketball enables bad actors and we need them out of the game. We must take decisive action. This is not a time for half measures or incremental change. And, you know, sometimes I think uh, Mark gets a little bit confused about uh, who the real bad actors are. But what he's talking about there is is this code of silence, this omerta among college coaches. And that exists. There's no question about it. That You know, it's they, they call it the coaching fraternity. I don't know how you want to characterize it. But in certain groups, people have things in common and they perceive that their interests could be under attack from outside forces, whether it's law enforcement or uh, the media or uh, some regulator or somebody who's, you know, trying to interfere with whatever they have going on, they band together and they don't rat each other out. And that's exactly what's happened with these presidents. (laughs) They have banded together. They have decided that they're going to protect their group interests, and they're going to do it in a way that is so deep off the record that nobody's going to have access to what they're talking about, and then nobody can come in and second guess them. That's exactly what is happening here. This is this is college president's omerta. This is the code of omerta working at the presidential level. And that omerta is so powerful at the NCAA national office. It's powerful in the governing bodies. It's powerful with any NCAA stakeholder who is receiving criticism from the outside. And it is full of self-righteousness. It is full of condescension. And it is full of denial. These people are in denial about how corrupt they look 
from the outside. And it's, it's situations like this. And, you know, these people say, trust us, trust us. You know, the NCAA says, trust us. That's what they're doing in Congress, essentially. Trust us. We'll do the right thing, even though they never have. These presidents are saying, trust us. We had no in- intent to evade public records requests. There's nothing to hide here. You know, we, we may have, you know, used some improper words and, and maybe some of the discussions we would have done differently if we had to do it again. But there's really nothing to see here. That's just not the case. This is serious stuff. And if Mark Emmert is going to say individuals who break the trust on which college sports is based have no place here, I want to see him apply that to the university presidents. He's not doing that. And by the way, even though he's talking about the code of omerta among college coaches, there wasn't a single head coach that has suffered a single meaningful consequence as a result of that criminal investigation. You know, Rick Pitino got fired and some other guys, you know, maybe get put on probation or something like that. But from a criminal standpoint, from the within the four corners of what that uh, investigation was designed to tease out and deal with, the head coaches got a completely free pass. And that's because they're a lot closer to the to the true decision makers in big time college sports. And there that was kind of a broader umbrella of omerta. But it's shocking to me. There was some damning evidence against some white coaches, head coaches at big time basketball programs, but they all skated when it came to indictments and uh, criminal charges and all of the things that their assistants had to answer to. And I don't think it's any coincidence that almost all the head coaches that were whose names came up were white and all of the assistant coaches who have to earn a living in this shadowy recruiting environment in college basketball, and they're really doing high hazard work, and they know that they could get busted. And that's kind of an understood thing in that community, another thing that didn't get teased out in that whole CCB invest, uh, report. But they're all black. These All the assistant coaches uh, who are operating in that uh, shadowy market are there because that market is comprised largely of black talent and black assets. And so they're in there trying to manage the recruiting for their schools. And when something goes wrong, they're the ones that get singled out. They're the ones that get blamed. They're the ones that get fired. And now they're the ones that get prosecuted. And in the context of university presidents, you have so many dynamics operating that actually protect them. You know, it was interesting. There was one of these articles that came out after the Post article came from the Chronicle of Higher Education, and the uh, the author of that article he, he makes some points that are sort of in defense of these presidents, and you know they're worth noting, and they have some merit, although not as much as I think that uh, the article gives them. But you know, it's no secret that university presidents at these big-time Power Five universities are under a level of scrutiny in how they manage their football and men's basketball programs that other university presidents simply don't have to contend with. And, and, And that's fair up to a point, but, you know, these presidents, they know what they're signing up for, and when you look at that Form 990 that lists all their salaries, most of them are very well compensated for being a university president, despite all of the uh, criticism of uh, you know these out of control athletic salaries, which they set by the way, uh, both at the conference level and at the university level. So the other thing that was interesting about this Chronicle of Higher Education article is that uh, it it mentioned race as a reason that these discussions may have been kind of offloaded into a 
private forum. And, you know, remember the social environment in August of 2020 was really unstable and there was civil unrest and a lot of it was race related. And so, you know, I mentioned this in a couple of my earlier episodes, but one of the elements of this perfect storm that we're looking at is this the social unrest that uh, revealed itself during COVID and as the big time football schools and the big time football conferences were deciding what to do on fall football. And there was a racial component to that because people were uh, finally saying out loud that there's a, an obvious racial component to the business model that we haven't been talking about honestly. And the coaches didn't talk about it honestly. The university didn't talk about it honestly. The NCAA didn't talk about it honestly. And, and I think that was a real missed opportunity. But that was on the radar screen. And, and there was a sense that this had to be part of the discussion. And, and it was going to be part of the optics that came out of a decision on whether to go forward with fall football. And if you're going to be shutting down field hockey and uh, rowing, soccer and volleyball or you know, all these other sports because of safety reasons. And there's a consensus because of that 50% threshold I talked about, you know, and 50% of the schools decided they weren't going to compete, then the entire division wasn't going to compete. And that was met almost immediately at every level except with big time football. And that was a safety issue. It was a, it was a health and safety issue. So how is it that you can not allow other teams to compete because it's unsafe, but you're allowing the football team to compete? And that's a fair question. You know, that's an obvious question. And it's a question that the the Big Ten presidents simply do not want to answer. And part of the discussion in the, the inconsistency in those two approaches focuses, I think, uncomfortably for these presidents on race, because all those non-revenue sports I just mentioned are overwhelmingly or exclusively white. And the big-time football product next to big-time men's basketball has more African-Americans than any other sport in any other division. And you also have to remember that athlete groups were organizing and there was a racial component to the the things that they wanted. And, and they that issue came up and it was something that the presidents were going to have to address if they chose to move forward. So you may have had this sort of double dose of fear in these presidents, because not only are they talking about big time football, which is always a minefield, then you add race on top of that. And, you know, that's that's a toxic combination. And I think that that the fear that, that those things may have inspired really speaks to how dysfunctional this this entire business model is. And we can't have an honest discussion about that. And that's in large part because the people who are sitting in the decision making chairs are scared to death to talk about it openly and honestly and publicly. And this decision by the Big Ten presidents is a perfect example of that. But now I want to talk specifically about Rebecca Blank, because as I said earlier, Rebecca Blank is not just some university president. She's just not a face in the Big Ten university president chancellor crowd. She is a walking conflict of interest. And all of these university presidents have an obvious conflict of interest in uh, serving their universities and then serving the conference because those two interests don't always align or they shouldn't always align, particularly on a decision like this. And remember that, you know, that Big Ten Conference, Inc., 
is a very powerful entity because all of the money, all of the football money, all the basketball money, all of the money that they you know, get to keep within the conference and then distribute out, that runs through the Big Ten Conference, Inc. And when you, you know, look at the payouts that are contained in that Form 990, in 2017, it was you know, like $55 million a school. They had about $760 million in total revenue. You know, that's not chump change. That's, that's big money. And you know, the presidents are sitting on that board and they want that money. And you know, that is an important position. And but blank, in addition to those uh, two hats that she wears, you know, the pr- university president and the Big Ten board of directors, she also was on her way to being named to the NCAA Board of Governors. So this is playing out in mid-August. Three weeks later, or four weeks later, Rebecca Blank is named to the uh, to the Board of Governors, which is the NCAA's highest governing board, the one that we've talked about at length uh, so far in this podcast, and the one that really copped out on the fall football decision. And it is doing the bidding of the Power Five conferences. So, you know, in comes blank as a Power Five, Big Ten university president, and she's going to be sitting on the board of governors. And again, the board of governors requires conference representation among the powerful football conferences. And, and that was a consequence of board of regents and, and the big time powerful interests kind of bullying their way into control of NCAA governance. But that's important in this context because Blank uh, has been a, a serious insider in all of the, the antitrust suits, the NCAA's legislative campaign, all of these nefarious campaigns to try to gain the Iron Throne of College Sports Regulation. And none of that was covered in these articles. So the Post didn't address that. The uh, the Chronicle of Higher Education didn't address that. And then, the, you know, the papers in Wisconsin didn't address that. And, and although technically she wasn't yet on the Board of Governors in August of 2020, she was a few weeks away from that. She was clearly on her way there. And she was doing the bidding of the NCAA National Office and all of the lawyers and the lobbyists and all those people who have formulated this strategy. And all of that has been tacitly blessed by the NCAA Board of Governors. And so she had a direct line to that whole world. And it's a very small world and a very powerful world. And that's where the future of college sports is being decided. And she is the only president in that group of Big Ten presidents who has that level of access and inside information. And remember, She's been working this angle since at least 2018. So that in 2018, this Austin suit was still going through the trial phase. This is before this whole nil debate about compensation had really gained steam. That was, you know, as we've discussed earlier, that was in May of 2019. And then you had California passing the state nil law in the fall of 2019. But in 2018, the NCAA was uh, just coming off of its attorney's fees litigation in O'Bannon, where it spent $100 million to fight to the death to avoid paying nil compensation. So coming into Austin, the NCAA wasn't, uh, oh yeah, well, you know, gosh, maybe we should rethink our policy on name, image, and likeness. So at the trial, the NCAA, as part of its direct case, called 
Rebecca Blank as a witness. And she was, you know, kind of NCAA's one-stop shopping. So she's a Big Ten University president. She's part of the Big Ten Conference. She, you know, has the clout of academia. She's a woman, you know, and there were, there were all these gender equity issues that the NCAA tried to pound into the antitrust case, which which didn't gain much traction with the judge. It was a woman, by the way. This is Claudia Wilkin, the same judge who, who heard O'Bannon. Uh, and I think she had heard enough of, of that kind of politicized uh, witness selection. But anyway, they call Blank, and Blank just goes right through the talking points. You know, no pay for play. You know, athletes are students. Uh, They can't be employees. We have to preserve the collegiate model. We have to preserve the recruiting environment, and on and on, right down the list. But then she said something that I think I, I know what she was trying to say, but she articulated it in a very clumsy way. And this caught fire in Wisconsin because Blank was trying to articulate a definition of the collegiate model. And the collegiate model, as Miles Brand formulated it, and we're going to talk a lot about that, and, and Blank has, has relied on that as well, not as clearly as, as Brand did, but she's using the same basic concept. So anyway, the collegiate model, in a nutshell, is that you have a, an absolute duty in college sports to maximize revenue from Division One men's basketball and big-time football, because those are the only two uh, revenue-generating products, and you just exploit the ever-living hell out of those two sports, and you make as much money as you can. And then you take that money, and to justify that exploitation, you take that money, and then you divert it over to interests on the university side that the university can claim uh, is consistent with their nonprofit mission. And so what that means is that they take this money from uh, a pool of highly valuable revenue-producing athletes, the overwhelming majority of whom are black, and then they divert that wealth over to white interests. So that money, by definition, under the collegiate model, is designed to go to fund non-revenue sports. It's designed to go to fund gender equity. It's designed to fund all the administration and staff to support those initiatives. And that's just the way universities operate. That's how they justify it. Well, that happens university-wide. And and we're going to talk all about that when we break down the collegiate model. But that's what she was trying to say. And instead, what she said is that if revenue-producing athletes were compensated and under her theory of, you know, this zero-sum game of, of this pool of athletic money and revenue, and they took all that money then they wouldn't be able to pay for non-revenue sports, which is a ridiculous argument on its face. We'll, we'll get to that too. But what she said was, if that scenario played out and we were left only with a big-time football and a big-time men's basketball program, then we wouldn't have athletics at all. And because of the complexities in the collegiate model and the clumsiness with which Blank expressed that concept at trial, she got all kinds of blowback. And then she was forced to uh, release a statement because a lot of fans construed that to mean that she was about to end the entire sports program uh, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So, so this statement, I mean, this is just, this is great. You can't make this stuff up. So in this statement, let's see, it says, uh, Chancellor Blank strongly supports Wisconsin's athletic program and believes the Badgers are a major asset to our campus and of the Big 
10. Article says the, that the statement went on to explain that Blank's comments were offered in the context of describing the economics of running a major broad-based amateur athletics program. And what she meant by that is that unless we could take this money from football and men's basketball and then fund all these opportunities. So, you know, Brand kind of formulated it this way and, and Blank is repeating that, that all this money is designed to create opportunities for athletic participation. And so the university has a duty to take this money from football and basketball and fund all of these other sports and uh, sports-related initiatives. And that's really what she was trying to say, but she said it in a way that uh, I think was subject to some reasonable misconstrue and the fan base wasn't too happy about it. Let's see. If a change in the structure of college athletics were to occur, she's talking about a kind of a pay-for-play system, UW would expect to be part of any conversation within the Big Ten and nationally about what that would mean for university athletics programs. And then the statement drops this little nugget, and, and this one is priceless. The Chancellor Blank believes that the current set of NCAA rules governing payments to student-athletes for the use of their names, images, and likenesses are appropriate to maintain a market for amateur athletics in the university setting. Again, you have to remember that that testimony was delivered before the NCAA got on board with this nil compensation thing a few months later, and which was a guise to just to get, get in front of Congress for these draconian immunities and protections. But in September of 2018, Rebecca Blank is saying, you know, up yours to nil compensation. She's saying the rules we have, all these limits that we have in place and have had in place are absolutely working. They're prudent, they're correct, and I stand by them. All right, now let's fast forward almost exactly two years, to September of 2020. What happens in September of 2020? Well, this is in the heat of this nil compensation campaign in the Senate that, as I've discussed in prior episodes, was nothing more than a ruse to get in front of the Senate to convince the Senate to basically eliminate any potential external external regulator to NCAA regulatory authority, to give the NCAA the iron throne of college sports regulation, to take state law, legislatures completely out of the picture as a, as a regulator, to take federal courts completely out of the picture as a potential regulator, and to get something from Congress that kind of locked Congress into buying into the NCAA's view of the world. So as part of that campaign, there were four hearings that were held between February and September in three separate committees. And the last one that was, in my judgment, kind of a circle back to some of these more anti-nil philosophies that, that were you know obvious back in 2018, but had kind of been softened during this nil compensation debate in the Senate. But in September, the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, chaired by Lamar Alexander, and I've talked about him as well in prior episodes. He's a Republican from Tennessee, and he was chair of that committee, and he was on his way out. He was retiring, but he held these hearings, and he was just, he just dug in, and he, it, he was going old school, and this is about integrity, and if you want to get paid, then go play in the pros, and he was adamantly opposed to nil compensation. That wasn't the NCAA party line. That wasn't the big, the power five party line. They were saying, oh yeah, we can have nil compensation, but only within principles that make it impossible to have nil compensation. And, and we've talked about that too. So they call Rebecca blank. 
Rebecca Blank is the, you know, the star NCAA witness from the academic side. And uh, she is only a few days away, I think, from, from moving up into this position on the Board of Governors. And, you know, in the prior episode, I incorrectly referred to her as a member of the Division I Board of Directors. I guess where I got that from her written testimony in this hearing, because she, <laughs> she made a mistake. And instead of saying Board of Governors, she said Division I Board of Directors. But anyway, she issued written testimony. And that's part of this whole process. The witnesses will, you know, present this, you know, kind of a summary of their testimony and they do it in written form. And then they pretty much read it when they deliver their op- opening remarks. And then in Q&A, you get some some different stuff. But she was party line, Power Five party line, uh, NCAA party line. But I think she was more on the Power Five side because at this time, the Power Five was saying, we have to have something immediately, right away right now. Time is of the essence. And she says that explicitly because they want to get the Senate locked in. They want to get these protections locked in because they knew the election was coming up. And although it seemed remote at the time, there was some possibility that the Republicans could lose control of the Senate. And if they did, this whole, you know, nil compensation uh, discussion that was a disguise for these extraordinary federal protections and immunities would be at risk. And as it turned out, that was the case. But this is Rebecca Blank on September 15th of 2020. And this is from her written statement. And here's how she she talks about nil. She says, we are now in the midst of a lively national discussion on how to best allow students to generate income from name, image, and likeness. Familiar, familiar known as nil. I think that's a typo. Other students have this opportunity and I support finding ways for student athletes to do so as well. I'd like to discuss the parameters of how this should look. (laughs) I mean, this is just facially irreconcilably in conflict with her with her statement after the Austin case. So now she's all on board with Nil, but only, only if Congress can follow these principles. I want to lay this out because I mean this this goes to the hypocrisy of this whole Nil compensation campaign in Congress. So before they're gonna there's gonna be any discussion about actual nil compensation opportunities and specific types of nil exploitation opportunities and categories of things that that athletes can can do and, and all that stuff. They want to put up some some restrictions. Some she she calls them guideposts. The NCAA calls them guardrails. The Power Five called them consensus principles. But they all go to the same thing and that is that the way they're defining name, image, and likeness compensation is so limited that, it, that there simply isn't anything after that. Here's what she says in her bullet points. This is what she wants from Congress. We need Congress to pass federal legislation. We need a national standard in short order to avoid a hodgepodge of state laws. And that's their uniformity theory. And hodgepodge, I could do a montage of all the people using the word hodgepodge. But basically what they want is a law that completely eliminates state legislatures from the regulatory field. And that's what preemption would have done. It would have made it impossible for the states like California to come in and pass a law that conflicted in any way with NCAA rules or compensation limits. And then she says, or her next bullet point is, Congress must enact a law before July 2021. And she says, time is of the essence. The state of Florida passed a nil law that takes effect on July 1st. Four other states have also passed nil laws. And so this, the sky is falling. If we don't get something done soon, then, you know, college sports as we know it, it's going to end because this Florida law is going to go into effect. And then the, other, the next uh, bullet point, and this ties into the first one, 
Congress must include a preemption. So she's explicitly using the word preemption. Not many of the NCAA witnesses did. So I give her credit for that. They talked about it in terms of uniformity and avoiding this hodgepodge of state laws. What they really meant is completely getting the state legislatures out of the regulatory field. So she talks about preemption. Then she slips in antitrust and she says she calls that a safe harbor. That was the buzzword for antitrust immunity in their congressional campaign. We need a safe harbor. Doesn't that sound good? Everybody wants a safe harbor. Who doesn't want a safe harbor? Who doesn't want uniformity, right? And so she's asking for these two extraordinary federal immunities and protections. And then she wants to protect the college recruiting environment. So none of this stuff can flow down into the recruiting decisions and, and any you know inducements and all that stuff. Oh, and we, we want to prevent pay for play. Obviously, we can't pay these guys, so they can't get money. How they reconcile that with nil compensation is a little, a little difficult to tease out. Uh, and, and there is a distinction, and we'll talk about that later. But uh, and then student athletes cannot be university employees. So there you have it. So after all of that, I ask you the question, what's left? The answer, virtually nothing. And so all these discussions that have been going on, and when you look at, at the actual specific opportunities that athletes would have to use their name, image, and likeness to make money within all of these restrictions is limited really to sort of some, what do they call these, these, these social influencer things. They're, they're splashing around in the nil kiddie pool. The other thing, and I included this in the, uh, the montage at the beginning of the episode with the music in that intro, all these people talking about potential name, image, and likeness compensation, insist on transparency. They, they've identified all the bad actors, you know, the bad actors that Mark Emmert referred to in that October 2017 statement. And the bad actors are anybody who could possibly interfere with the revenue streams that the Power Five and the NCAA national office are now enjoying. So athlete agents are, are bad news. These third, third party uh, vendors are bad news. Anybody who could conceivably interfere with the relation, the existing relationship and the status quo relationship between the athlete and the university is, is a bad actor. And so how do you protect yourself from the bad actors? Well, you demand absolute transparency. So all of these nil proposals that have been put forward would require the disclosure of every detail of every interaction that an athlete has in a potential nil marketing opportunity. And it's a, just like a documentary strip search of every aspect of the relationship between the athlete and an opportunity to make money through their name, image, and likeness. And you know, so Rebecca Blank's all about transparency when it is bringing the hammer down on a relationship between an athlete and an income opportunity. But she's not so big on the transparency thing when it comes to explaining one of the most consequential decisions that the big-time college power players have had to make in the 21st century. So we're going to talk a lot about uh, Rebecca Blank when we get to the congressional testimony phase of analyzing the perfect storm. And, and her live testimony was really interesting and it's important to understand because it's, it's just a blueprint for this entire nil compensation fraud. And 
what the NCAA national office and the Power Five are really trying to accomplish here. And uh, she's, you know, she's been right there on the front lines of this strategy as it's played out. And she's played both sides of the coin. So, you know, no nil compensation in 2018. Yes, nil compensation in 2020, so long as we get these extraordinary federal protections and immunities. It's just, it's shocking to me that that kind of hypocrisy and dishonesty has, has gotten a free pass in some of our most prestigious institutions of higher education. All right. So in our next couple of episodes, I'm going to try to do a primer on antitrust law and then lead us through the 2006 wave of antitrust litigation, the the White case in 2006 and the, excuse me, the O'Bannon case in 2009. And then Austin, which I think was filed in 2014, but you have to kind of understand them all together to understand how Austin is playing out. And I want to get to what's happening in the U.S. Supreme Court right now because it, it's really interesting. And we're going to you know, do a crash course on antitrust law just to get to that point. And then we're going to have some fun trying to figure out what the U.S. Supreme Court is going to do. And remember, oral argument in that Austin case is on March 31st, and then the case will be submitted. And the justices will take all of the information, all the briefing and the oral argument, and then make a decision. And again, this could be one of the most consequential legal decisions in the history of college sports. All right. So thank you so much for joining me. And I will be back at you just as soon as I can with the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Mm -hmm.